Welcome to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Wajahad Ali. And we are so delighted once again to bring to the Democracy-ish audience a thoughtful, insightful guest and conversation. Waj, you always do much better movie phone introductions than I do, so I am turning it over to you for your intro. David Rothkopf is the author of numerous <laughs> books. His latest is American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation. How was that? Was that pretty good? I'm still going. That was, re- uh, that was really good. Uh, he is also the host of the podcast Deep State Radio, which you all should listen to, and a professor of international relations. But specifically, his latest book, American Resistance, which you all should pick up, is the first book to really do a deep dive into the unprecedented role that of so many government officials uh, who tried their best uh, to resist the horrific actions of the Trump administration. Some of them paid the price. Some of them only now are able to tell their story. Some of these individuals you now know because they have been targeted by MAGA and the Trump administration, including Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, his brother, Ambassador uh, Marie Yovanovitch, and Fiona Hill, among others. Uh, David, welcome. And also, I must give credit to David because he has achieved such legendary status he is successful in his field to the point where he can wear sweats to literally any and every occasion even aspen and people don't care it's awesome well i, 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 would, I would i would agree with you that people don't care what i wear that's that's true uh, i i'm going to give you an <laughs> insight here that you probably didn't expect to start out with a long time ago when both of you were in swaddling clothes no doubt i i was in my first job and I, it was a, a, in New York City, and it was a kind of ad agency, media company kind of deal. And some guy came in, and he had a great idea. He said, I think we should do this thing called movie phone. And here's a script. And he said, but we need a dummy. We need a sample. Do you have any dummies around here who could read it? And so I volunteered. And so the very first no. movie phone, the very first movie phone demo was me talking wow. about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. What? Amazing. <laughs> yeah, we had no idea. Daniel just on her own riffed just, about that. Yes, that was literally a joke. And I love the fact that it's true. <laughs> you should lead your, if that was, if I had done that, I would lead my bio that would, with that. Like, yeah. that would, even if I wrote a book, they'd be like, and Wajatali, the person who did the first demo for Movie Phone exactly. and the author yeah. of several books. Yeah, and that was it was it was great. And it's you know, I gotta tell you, when you're doing like this kind of thing and you're announcing and you're going, and then Indy goes to the temple, but in the background you have that Indiana Jones music, you know, and it's it like no matter what you do, it sounds good because you've got that Indiana Jones music in the background. I love this so much. Um, okay, David, <laughs> we will switch <laughs> gears <laughs> okay. from movie phone, but this was probably the, this is like one of those questions that you'll see on trivia. No one would have guessed that David, no, no one. No one. Um, so you should use that as your like two truths and a lie. Um, but you know, I want to talk about the fact that you wrote this book, American resistance and talking about how these patriots, which is what I will call them. It's not what Donald Trump or the Republican Party has referred to these people as patriots putting their careers and in a lot of ways, um, their lives on the line in order to try their very best to save 
um, the nation to save our democracy. The first question that I have for you, though, is do you think that we have been saved? Like, do you think that the worst that could have happened was actually averted or were they just able to try and open up our eyes as we were careening towards the cliff of our democracy? Well, I think, you know, time after time during the Trump administration, they kept things from being much worse. But I, we are not safe. The, you know, the, the uh, country uh, is at high risk. You know, the last election, a lot of us were delighted that more election deniers didn't win and Republicans didn't take the Senate and so forth. But the last election was a tie and a lot of mm. election deniers did win. Um, what's more, you know, as I talk about in the book, when Trump got in in 2016, 2017, he didn't have any idea how to be president. And so he would make a lot of mistakes. And when he made the mistakes, there were people in the government who would say, no, sir, the law doesn't allow you to do that. Or no, sir, uh, we've got to refer to the Congress on that. Or people would go to a whistleblower or whatever. You know, they did these things that I talk about in the book, and they served as an effective guardrail against insane Trump ideas, whether it's a moat at the southern border full of alligators or shooting Clorox into your veins or, you know, launching a war with North Korea or pulling out of NATO. There were a lot of insane ideas. You just did some of the greatest hits. Well done, David. (laughs) We forgot about. And there are more. But the thing is, they stopped those things from happening. Well, as Trump went along, he said, you know, these people are an impediment. These people who put the Constitution and their oath of office ahead of loyalty to me have got to be gotten rid of. And they started finding ways to do that. And one of them at the very end of the administration was this idea called Schedule F, which would allow them to fire perhaps as many as 50,000 uh, uh, you know, public servants uh, because they put the country before a party or a person. And when I talked to the people, you know, I talked to for this book, I talked to about 100 people. One of the amazingly, you know, unanimous conclusions, and most of them, I would say, were Republicans, and many of them were senior officials in the Trump administration, was Trump learned, and, and, and senior MAGA politicians learned, that if they want to go and implement their agenda, they've got to neutralize these people. And that's why now, as you look towards 2024, Trump, DeSantis, people like Newt Gingrich, others in the party are all talking about how do we fire these people? How do we work around these people? And, and that's you know, you know, nothing less than their appetite for authoritarianism. They want to mm-hmm. stop the people who can stop them. And, and so you know, I wrote the book to show how that worked. But I also wrote the book because we're not out of the woods. It needs to be a warning. We need to understand how valuable these people are. And we need to understand that the MAGA GOP is after them. And if they mm. get reelected, they're going to find a way to stop them from doing what's right. You know, I'm in Virginia and I have friends who work, um, you know, as low level, mid level bureaucrats. And what they told me during the Trump era was that they're deliberately gutting the uh, uh, State Department. They're deliberately gutting these institutions that do a lot of the important work that don't get the press. 
and some of the folks who stayed behind. And this is where I want you to really talk about uh, because the nuances are often lost, right, in life, especially now with disinformation and social media. I remember I had a conversation with a young white woman from the Midwest, like dyed in the wool Republican, conservative, uh, working in defense. And kind of off the record, she was a friend of a friend. She was saying, I'm really afraid about this Trump administration, and I didn't come here for this. And I am wrestling with whether to stay and potentially enable, but I know if I leave, I will, re I will be replaced with a person who does not care about democracy. Mm -hmm. And this weighed on so many folks. Am I enabling or am I resisting? Do I stay or should I leave? And can you just, you know, because I think nuance is important here. Can you explain that dilemma that so many of these folks had throughout these seven years, or I would say the four years of, of, of Trump, of this administration, where they realized that if they had left, the person who would actually replace them would do far more damage to our already fragile democracy. Yeah, that was a struggle that people had from the very beginning. Do I join the campaign of this guy who is potentially, you know, loose cannon and dangerous to the very end where uh, I, in one instance, which I talk about in the book, a very, very senior White House official called up a former senior White House official on January 6th and said, I want to leave. Now, the former White House official, former official in a Republican administration, uh, and a man of impeccable character said, no, you have to stay. You have to stay because we need to have a transition to the next administration. You have to stay because we need some sane people there. And others, including Defense Secretary Mark Esper and, um, and, and while she was in the administration, Secretary Nielsen, but lots and lots of others, Secretary Mattis, um, uh, uh, Rex Tillerson uh, and and so forth, you know, all of these people said, you know, I feel I can keep him in line or defuse him or work around it, and that's why I'm not needed here. And some of the people who said they could do that um, are people that are I'm not big fans of. You know, John Bolton felt he could do it. Um, uh, uh, you know, Bill Barr felt he could do it to some extent. Um, but uh, the reality is that. Many of them, and you can judge their records, you know, uh, you know, for yourself on the face of whether you think they did enough. But many of them came to the conclusion that the gap that would be left if they departed the government uh, was going to be filled with somebody worse, more dangerous. And there was plenty of evidence of that. You know, I mean, look, by the end of the administration, you had Chad Wolf. Who was acting as Secretary of mm -hmm. Homeland Security, and Chris Miller was acting as Secretary of Defense. You had uh, Trump putting in people as inspectors general, some of whom are still in place, uh, to you know quash whistleblowers. Uh, you had Rick Grinnell. I mean, uh, uh, a man yeah, freaks, literally absolute no freaks, committed to authoritarianism, right? Who had no intelligence experience at, in a job where it is statutorily. Um, required uh, a director of national intelligence that the person have intelligence experience. Cash Patel, uh, you know <laughs> the list. The list goes on. There were Trump stooges that were being put into these positions uh, in order to um, clear the way for an agenda that often involved breaking the law, undermining U.S. national interests, mm. doing things that were corrupt serving foreign dictators or autocrats, 
undermining U.S. national security. Uh, and he wanted to be free to do that. And uh, and and so, you know, if he got reelected or if DeSantis gets elected or if some of the other MAGA GOP types who, you know, sort of studied in this world get reelected and, uh, you know, um, then, you know, what I think you can expect is, you know, this parade of stooges into the government. Uh, and that may look like, oh, they're hiring bad people. But it's not that, you know, you don't run Herschel Walker for Senate in Georgia, even though he's incredibly unqualified, um, uh, for no reason. You do it because that person will be loyal. They won't question you. Uh, in Herschel Walker's case, he doesn't have the horsepower to question you. You know, he just, he, he would be, you know, he's, he's like... Uh, um, an empty uh, vessel. He, yeah, I don't know is, what there. There are lots he, of names that I'd like to call him, but for this, for a these broken, purposes, empty vessel. I will call him an empty vessel. Well, there, there was a term I used to refer to Mike Pence, which is, um, you know, he's an HOV lane dummy, you know, and 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 that's, <laughs> and, and that's you know, that's no disrespect kind of, to HOV lane dummies, by the right, way. There are some right, good, right, there are right, some right. good dummies that are useful. Well, well, exactly. But but the point is that. You know, it's not just, oh, isn't that funny that they want Herschel Walker or Tommy mm. Tuberville or, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene or, or some of these characters in there. There's a reason they want it. There's a reason they came up with the deep state um, uh, myth. And that is they want to discredit the people that mm -hmm. honor their oath in the Constitution. And they want to have people in there who will just click their heels, say, yes, sir. And, you know, the, the examples of governments in which that was the norm uh, exist throughout history. Uh, and, you know, in every case, uh, they lead to authoritarianism, fascism, uh, and the death of democracy. You know, David, you, you lay out um, the picture of, of where we are. And the media has been a full-fledged accomplice and partner in getting America to this place. Because you said from the beginning, you know, Donald Trump was never qualified to be president of the United States. But instead of alerting the American people to that fact via journalism, they decided that he was good for ratings. Mm. So they kept the spotlight and the cameras on him rolling at all times, helping to spread his lies, helping to elevate the number of people that you have named into positions of power that they would have never been able to get into 10 and 15 years ago within the circles of the Republican Party. And so I, I, I wonder, you know, if you try, right, which is what we did via the, the midterm elections to try and stifle this continued coup, right, that continues to happen, you know, by virtue of, of elections and then election deniers and then the amplification of Marjorie Taylor Greene to Kevin McCarthy's right hand, you know, should he become speaker? These people aren't going anywhere. And so they seem not only do they not seem to be going anywhere, they actually seem to be multiplying. Right. This spread of what was considered to be the fringe has now is now just the mainstream norm of the Republican Party where they can't even bring themselves. You know, it takes a week or plus 
to uh, to 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 wag a finger at Donald Trump for bringing in a Nick Fuentes to dinner to to, you know, to even push back against what should be a very low lift. So what do you think the responsibility is of the media moving forward as we now make the slodge to 2024? And is there is there anything definitive that can be done by the people to stop the continued gremlin multiplying of the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Paul Gosers and the Matt Gateses and the Lauren Boberts of the world? Well, let me answer your question in reverse. The, the thing to be done by the people is to stop buying the bullshit and to call out bullshit when they see it. And, you know, we live in an age where every single person out there has a social media platform. Every single person out there can influence a group of people, might be seven people, might be 70,000 people, but they all have the ability to do it. And if they all do it together, they are a new force in the media. Uh, and they can say, no, that's a lie. You know, they can say, no, that's, you know, BS. And we don't, we, you know, we, we're, we're not going to buy into it. The media has two problems here. There's some people in the media who are as cynical as you described, who say, oh, yeah, this gets clicks. Let's get Donald on. He's uh, interesting. There are some people in the media who want to advance his agenda. There's the Fox. There's the right wing media bubble. Um, but there's another group that are, you know, is in some ways much, much bigger and more pernicious. And that's the group that is saying, um, I need to both sides this. I need to mm. show the Republicans mm -hmm. and the Democrats, because if I don't, I'm going to be accused of being unfair and not objective. And they've completely lost sight of the fact that the job of a journalist is not to present both sides. The job of the journalist is to present the truth. And if Come one on. side is telling the truth and the other side is presenting a lie, if one side is trying to help the people and the other side run is, is got an agenda that will lead to the destruction of our democracy, they're not the same. And if you mm. present them as the same, mm -hmm. then you normalize them. And that is the far more dangerous thing. And it's happening now. And you've seen, I'll tell you, you've seen it a lot recently when people go, oh, yeah, Trump, Trump fucked up. So let's uh, let's turn our attention to Ron DeSantis, the savior of the Republican Party, except Ron DeSantis is either just as bad as Donald Trump or he's worse, or worse. than Donald Trump, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Ron DeSantis fires public prosecutors who express a view that don't take an action, express a view that he disagrees with. He says, you can't say gay in the schools. He uh, has his own little police force, which yep. goes after people who uh, are, are simply trying to vote as a way of suppressing the vote. He quashes the flow of COVID data um, uh, because he doesn't think it politically uh, suits him. He supports um, through his silence and sometimes through his active embrace, anti-Semite, racist, right. misogynist. Ron DeSantis is not the normal Republican, but no. a lot of people in the media are going, oh, okay, we're over Trump and we're now back to Ron DeSantis as if Ron DeSantis were somehow Jeb Bush. Mitt Romney. From 2012 that, Mitt Romney. Right. Yeah. But let's not let those assholes off the hook either, because the reality is this. Mitt Romney and Jeb Bush sat there silently 
or in Romney's case, like solicited Trump, um, you know, the Bush family, which has huge amount of power. What did they do with the rise Nothing. of Donald Trump? Nothing. When did they call out Donald Trump? The Republican establishment validated him with their silence. And so there was a lot of indirect action that has supported the rise of this MAGA movement and is why after two impeachments, after an insurrection, after serial sex abuse, after serial obstruction of justice, after the vileness of Donald Trump, after betraying the country and embracing Vladimir Putin and embracing autocrats around the world, that movement is just as strong as it was because nobody is calling it out in the way that they should call it out and say, this is the biggest single threat that exists in the world, bigger than Russia, bigger than China to the United States. You know, speaking about not calling it out, normalizing it, doing it both sides and gaslighting, uh, what you just said reminded me of the first time I actually met you, which was six years ago, where I was invited to the Aspen Ideas Festival. And for those who don't know, Aspen, beautiful place. It's known as Billionaire's Mountain, right? It's, it's, a, it's a small hub of some of the wealthiest, most powerful folks. And they have this annual Aspen Ideas Festival, which if you're lucky enough to get invited, please do, because you can enjoy three days of beauty and to hobnob with really, really rich folks. So you were- Also, also oh, and, and you're important overlooking- Free hot dogs. Free hot dogs. A lot of free hot dogs. They're these free hot dogs. The free food is where, like, as a child of immigrants, I'm like, I need to be invited every year. Uh, Befriend these rich whites. Um, You were hosting a panel, I remember. And you were the moderator. And there were three folks on the panel. One of them is the friend of the podcast, Julia Yaffe. Another person I forget. But another one was David Petraeus. And you were bringing out, marshalling the evidence and talking about the, the threat of Trump to democracy. And I'll never forget that the only two people who seemed to have this clarion call were you and Julia, uh, both Jews, both minorities. And David Petraeus, of all people, I think was auditioning for a job. And he kept quiet. And I remember you were just kind of disgusted and shocked because you were marshalling out this evidence. And these other two folks who were, I think, including Petraeus, who were looking for jobs, who had expertise in national security, were like, well, you don't know both sides. And so talk to us about those folks within not the media institution, but national security, who knew better, who kept quiet? Well, it, you know, it's, it picks up on what I was saying before, and it's true. You know, Petraeus wasn't just keeping quiet. Petraeus was, as you say, auditioning. He was defending Trump. He was saying, well, look, if we all get together and all the pros get together, we can change Trump. And there were a few people I might you know, I, I would admit, in having done this book, revealed it to me. You know, there are a bunch of people who actually believed that. They thought, well, get in the office, and you know, he'll surround himself with pros, and he will learn. And they didn't realize the depths of his ignorance, the depths of his depravity, or his, you know, narcissism and his complete not just an inability to learn, but his unwillingness to even give it a shot. Right. But there are a lot of people in Washington whose personal ambition allows them to say, I can, I, 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 I want to get in there and do this. And they'll come up with a rationalization. Mm-hmm. Uh, though, you know, and, and look, let's be honest. Almost all the high quality senior policy people in the United States government have at one time or another worked for a president they didn't think deserved the job or worked for a president 
who they didn't think was experienced enough or smart enough to hold the job. Um, you know, the people who were flocking to George W. Bush, by and large, did not say, this man is the greatest strategic mind of our time, right? But they thought, well, if I go in there, um, I, you know, I can make a difference. And so they sort of saw this as a step on that continuum. Uh, and as it turned out, of course, it was nothing like it. Now, you know, it was not just that Julia and I are, you know, you know, deeply insightful people, although Julia is very insightful. Um, it, all, all it took was actually following Trump's career for a while. And I lived in New York. And, you know, if there was one thing that, you know, sort of was underplayed in the 2016 election, it was that the island on which Donald Trump lived, Manhattan, gave 11% of its vote to Donald Trump. The people mm -hmm. who knew Donald Trump the best, nine out of 10 of them said, no way that guy should be president of the United States. His own uh, hometown rejected him. Yeah. Re didn't just reject him. I mean, you know, it, it, it was... It was um, uh, an embarrassment, but um, the the so so the, the evidence was out there. I mean, I you know I was the editor for a Policy Magazine in twenty from twenty twelve to twenty seventeen, and in twenty um, sixteen, I guess during the election, for the first time in the fifty year history of the magazine, we wrote an op ed saying. We oppose the election of Donald Trump. We support the election of Hillary Clinton. We'd never done that before because we saw Donald Trump as the biggest threat to U.S. national security that existed on the planet Earth. Uh, now it's not Trump. Now he has, with the help of the Federalist Society and a lot of dark mm -hmm. money and a lot of other groups, he has, has, has become, has institutionalized that threat. And so the MAGA GOP, and I'm always careful to call them the MAGA GOP because it's not the old GOP. You know, it's not it's it's not something we've seen before. Um, that group um, has gained strength, gained money, gained traction, gained infrastructure, um, gained know-how. Uh, and right right now, not not neither of you guys who follow these things very closely can tell me whether democracy is going to survive in America. I mean, inshallah. That was we always say inshallah. My, that was, that was, that's my question for you, because the reality of what you of what your book lays out, what your work has laid out, what Waj and I try individually and collectively on this show to lay out is the fact that we're still under severe threat. That, like to your point, the in, the the institutionalizing of authoritarianism and fascism, the normalizing of it, right? Where again, the media made a joke of Donald Trump, made a joke and said that you don't need to really be concerned, Americans, because these people are on the fringe, and then these people found their way into mainstream to the point where we. I don't think that journalists do know what their role is as the fourth estate anymore, that their role is not to present two sides, that their role is to tell the truth, right? And to make very clear what that truth is. And so I, I'm I'm wondering, David, like, as we go into, and, and we were saying that midterm elections could very well be our last free and fair election, right? 
Historically, people turned out, young people, Generation Z, turned out in mass in a midterm election in a way that they have never done before. I think that Generation Z is also more aware and recognizes the impact that earlier generations have had on the dismal standing that they are in right now, the inability to buy a home, the inability to, you know, to find a uh, good work, the inability to probably live through multiple climate crises that keep happening. And so is there, and this is coming from me, who is always le- ye of little goddamn hope, is <laughs> mustard there seed any of hope. mustard, mustard seed, of seed hope. the mustard seed that I, that I often talk about, is there any hope that you have in the younger generation that seems to be more tapped in politically and more astute, I personally think, than prior generations to the catastrophe that is impending, right? Like I know that they make memes and they do, you know, and they do the most and they have videos and all these things, but it's because I think that their anxiety is through the roof. So is there any hope of staving this crisis off, or are we just again holding our breath till we get to 2024 when we finally realize that the roadrunner has completely gone off the cliff? We all look down and then that is it. The drop is done. Yeah, there is hope. Um, and uh, um, I, I, I think, you know, I, I think my book is a fairly optimistic book, but I, but I, but I think that what you're talking about is is the source of of greatest hope. You know, I sensed in your in your comment there a little bit of an attack on my generation, and yes, that's entirely <laughs> correct, right? the The boomer generation. I'm a very late boomer, right? But the boomer generation um, were different from the greatest generation because they were handed America on a silver platter. And the boomers, and you know, think about it, George Bush, Bill Clinton, and Donald Trump were all born in the same year, 1946, right after World War II, right when the United States was far and away the most powerful nation on earth. They felt entitled to prosperity, they felt entitled to global domination, and they felt entitled to democracy and our institutions. And they got lax. And what we've seen in the past mm. few years is that internationally rivals have emerged that will transcend the U.S. in terms of the size of their economy and their influence. And domestically, our democracy has come under siege. And uh, fortunately for the United States, we're in the midst of a demographic sea change. Uh, not only is Gen- Generation Z rising, but the country is changing so that by the year 2043, according to the Census Bureau, the majority of Americans will be people in groups that we once defined as minority groups. We will be more diverse. That is a good thing, not just for a political, ideological reason. It's a good thing because it helps us be competitive in the global economy. It's a good thing because it gives us a richer pool of talent to draw on and a more diverse set of experiences. The problem we've got now is there is a backlash to that. And the people who've been in charge, which is basically white guys, uh, and particularly older white guys, older rich white guys, older rich Christian white guys, they yep. feel like they were handed this thing and and they don't understand why it's being taken away from them. They don't understand that 
democracy adapts, that the Constitution's genius is not in the words of the uh, founders, but in the fact that it is designed to perfect itself, to change over time. Uh, and I think you saw in the last election the first strains of this Generation Z group coming out and saying, no, we will be heard, uh, we will finally engage, and their agenda is completely different. They, they don't, you know, the, the climate change denial doesn't exist within that group as a real issue. They see it as a crucial issue, and there's a lot of consensus around it. Uh, they have completely different ideas towards the role in society of the LGBTQ plus community, the role in society um, of, of diversity, the role in society of women. Um, and, and, and every day, there's more of them out there. And every day, they will change this a little bit. And, you know, I think finally, you know, there's one other thing that's happened. If you take the agenda that I would characterize, many people characterize as a progressive agenda, and, you know, we can put the list together, but let's just say fairer taxation, mm -hmm. health care for everybody, fairer gun laws, fighting climate change, educational reform to enable people, more people to be uh, educated. The list can go on and on. Um, you know, the right to marry who you want to marry, the, the right of a woman to control her own body. Every single poll that I've seen by a credible organization shows that 60, 70, or 80%, or 90% in some cases, of Americans support that. Yeah. The MAGA right is a minority movement, and it's getting smaller. The progressive agenda of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s is now the mainstream agenda of two-thirds of the American people. And so if we can just weather this backlash, and if we can just not take democracy for granted, We've got the wind at our backs, and I think maybe you can plant your mustard seed and it can grow into something a little bigger. Uh, you know, you talk about this the old white guys, but I'm, I'm looking at the young white guys who are mobilizing this hate, this fear, this anxiety, you know, the Elon Musks of the world and their fanboys. And, uh, you know, I want to I bring the focus back you, you uh, consider to some of the young white guy because he's your age, right? Youngish. Well, I'm not. Well, I'm not young. Uh, an oldish, uh, middle-aged white guy who has uh, a young alt-white army and is building one on Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. uh, along with Nick Fuentes, who is the young generation of white nationalists who dined with Donald Trump and Kanye. And Daniel said that there was slight finger wagging at Donald Trump. Actually, slight edit, slight finger wagging at Nick Fuentes. They still haven't actually criticized Donald Trump himself. That's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, so just to let you know, because he's still the presumptive 2022 nominee, and as such. Part of this MAGA white nationalist trend is to attack Jews, women, and patriots who spoke out. And right now, what happened is that Elon Musk put in his target sites uh, one of the individuals who you mentioned in your book, Ambassador, excuse me, uh, former Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, who is a Jewish American, former refugee, who spoke out and ever since has been harassed and threatened by MAGA, right? And Elon Musk chose him to advance the deep state anti-Semitic conspiracy. And Vindman, of course, responded back. But, you know, him and all these others, their life has been under constant threat. So I see, uh, you know, people like Vindman and Fiona Hill and others who spoke up. I see people, even Republicans, like Rusty Bowers of Arizona, lifelong Republican who said, eh, I'm not going to go along with the big lie. And there's death threats against him. 
Brad Raffensperger, Georgia Secretary of State, still got death threats. Freaking Mike Pence, the whitest, most Christian man on earth, they tried to kill him because he would not go along with the generous insurrection. When you see this, David, you know, what incentive do people have within these institutions to speak up and risk their neck for democracy? Because like you said, you, you categorize and, and profile the folks who helped us barely survive Donald Trump. This threat is ongoing. If there is a DeSantis that comes in and through match, you know, illegal machinations and chaos and dis- disinformation, he could win. You know, how do we inspire, strengthen, support the next generation of bureaucrats who might look at what's happening to people like Vindman and Fiona Hill and say, F that, I'm just going to save myself and my family? Uh, well, we have to be careful of that because people tend to have that impulse. But there was slavery. There was a civil war in the Confederacy. Um, there was the Red Scare. There were major waves of anti uh, immigrant violence sponsored by the government, sponsored by the Wilson administration and in, 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 right around the time of the end of the First World War. There was Joseph McCarthy. Um, mm. There have been throughout our history hateful groups, uh, uh, racist movements. Racism is in the DNA of the United States, which is why yep. they don't want to teach about the DNA of the United States. But we are a country that was founded on slavery and genocide. And that's just the fact. That's not a political statement. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think we have to recognize that we are always fighting those things. And I think the the benefit of the past few years, if there has been a benefit, is that it reminds us that we are not um, uh, entitled to democracy. We have to work for democracy every single day. Now, my experience in Washington over the course of the past 30 years is that the United States government is full of people, civil servants, foreign service officers, intelligence officers, military officers, political appointees, politicians, who, for the most part, are choosing public service, not because they get rich at it, although some do. They're, in fact, they make less money doing it, and they get all sorts of brickbats. Uh, They're doing it because they believe in helping and strengthening our communities. And time after time, throughout our history, when we faced the threats like the ones I enumerated, we came out on the right side of it and we came out stronger. And I think, you know, this generation is now getting the same call. And uh, I think we have to recognize that those people making the death threats on Twitter or Elon Musk, um, not only represent a minority view, uh, they are for the most part weak, they are cowards, they are ignorant, they don't understand the long-term trends, and they will be stopped. Whether it's Elon Musk being stopped because you know he bought something and he doesn't understand that the content of Twitter is created by its members and that the reason they show up is for a sense of community and if they don't feel that it's a community they want to be in, they will stop providing the content. The advertisers won't show up and it will have no value. He will turn it into truth social. And as for the Nick Fuentes of the world and this sort of incel army, um, mm-hmm. these are losers. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think it's really important to remember 
there are more of us than them. We are smarter than them. We work harder than them. Uh, we have better ideas than they do. Uh, and ultimately, if we are willing to fight every day, we will defeat them and we will address this problem and we must prepare ourselves for the next one. But, but, but I am optimistic because I've seen it happen time and time again. And any reading of history shows that that's what happens. We rise to these challenges. You know, Hitler was a big challenge. Stalin was a big challenge. Mussolini was a big challenge. Um, racism in the United States was a big challenge. We have risen to those challenges to, you know, we haven't solved all those problems, but we have risen to those challenges and we've made the world better. And I see no reason to give up hope in the core idea that, you know, progress works. Oh, David, we often don't end on a positive note. And I must, I must applaud you for bringing us full circle. And I went from despair to once again, gripping my mustard seed with every <laughs> bit of strength that I have, hoping that at some point uh, I will plant it and it will grow. Um, folks, the title of the book is American Resistance, the Inside Story of How the Deep State Saved the Nation. Um, David Rothkopf, we thank you so much for for making the time to join Democracy-ish, bring some F-bombs and some, um, and some hopefulness with you. We appreciate you. Well, you can take the boy out of New Jersey, but you can't take New Jersey out of the boy. <laughs> Um, I, I, I'm, I'm really grateful to be invited, but more importantly, I'm really grateful for the work you guys are doing. It, it makes a huge difference. And I wish you guys all the luck in the world with this podcast. Thank you, Thank sir. You. And, I, and I have hope that one day you can again, be the official voice of movie phone. Don't stop believing. <laughs> Don't stop believing folks. Thank you for listening to democracy ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Wajah <laughs> and we will be back next week if, in fact, we have a country left. Inshallah. <laughs>